Our scripture this morning will come from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. I've shared with you we are working through a series now in the book of Acts, studying Acts together. Last year we looked at Luke, and Luke in the gospel now writes Acts. Luke wrote, writes both the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts, so we'll be studying Acts together. We encourage you to take some time you know, during the week to, to do some readings. You may want your Bibles with you today since we are going to be kind of walking through this passage and also, there are some free Bible apps that you can get for your phones or tablets or other things like Bible Gateway is free. You can, you can get that or version, which is Y-O-U version. It gives you the opportunity to have your Bible on your phone or on a tablet or whatever you might have near you. So when you're waiting somewhere, you'd have an opportunity to do some reading. Acts chapter 2. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are just so grateful. For the privilege of being your church, your children, the body of Christ, disciples. We give you thanks, dear God, for your Holy Spirit. And we ask that it would be poured out upon us now as we study your word. And God, as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever had one of those high spiritual moments in your life when you could just feel the presence of God? You just knew that God was at work. You, you could feel it. Maybe it was the, the day that you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Some people can tell you, here was the date, here's the time, here's where I were, well, you know, here's where I was, this is what was happening, and, and that's when I gave my life to Christ. For others of us, there are other times in our lives when we, we feel that incredible presence of God. But then we're not careful, it can begin to wane a little bit. It can begin to, to drift a little bit. It can begin to fade a little bit. And, and it can happen to all of us. It, it happens not only to you as, as members of the church, but it also happens to clergy. We can, we can get so busy with the busyness of the church or sometimes the hassles of the church that, that we begin to allow our spirit to fade. How do we hold on to that? The scripture that we're looking at is in Acts 2. It's continuation of the day of Pentecost. A couple weeks ago, we actually looked at what happened when all these people came together for this high holy day. Pentecost. It's 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration of the harvest. It's a, it's a festival of weeks. And, and so the people had all joined together and the disciples were waiting. You see, Jesus had been crucified. He had been raised from the dead. Luke tells us he had spent about 40 days among them, teaching them of the kingdom of God. But then Jesus had ascended into heaven, and it's about a week later, they're still waiting. And all of a sudden, God breathes upon them. And all of a sudden, the Spirit erupts. The disciples, I mean, they, they are just empowered by the Spirit. They begin to stand up and proclaim what is happening. The crowds are bewildered. They're, they're so confused about what is happening here. And, and they're amazed because the ones who are preaching are Galileans, but everybody can hear in their own language. And, and, and they're just trying to figure it out. What does this mean? What does this mean? And I love the way Luke tells us that some of the people said, I know what it means. It means they're drunk. These people are drunk. And Peter gets up and says, how dare you? How dare you think that we're drunk when it's only 9 o'clock in the morning? I mean, you know, not your best apologetic mo moment there. But then he begins to preach. 
And he's teaching the Israelites, the fellow Jews, those who were part of his, his world. And he says in verse 22, You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of powers and wonders and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourself know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside of the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death because it was impossible to be held by its power. I mean, did you catch what just happened there? I mean, Peter stands up in front of the people. They're all amazed at what God is doing. The Spirit's moving. Crowds of people. I mean, mobs of people on a high holy day. Jerusalem would just be packed with people. And Peter stands up and goes, let me tell you what's happening here. I can tell you what's happening here. You know how we, in our Jewish faith, we've been praying to God for a Messiah? You know how all of our prophets for all these years have been, been proclaiming that God is going to put one that's a descendant of David on the throne. You know how we've been begging God for the Messiah or the Christ to come. You know how we've been praying to God for the Messiah or Christ to come. Well, he came in the person of Jesus. Remember how he lived among us and he did incredible deeds of power and, and signs of God and did some amazing things right in front of all of us? Well, here's what happened. You killed him. Wow. I mean, I don't think... Peter actually had a chance to go to seminary and learn that that might be a little direct sermon. I mean, that's what he says, though. You, you killed him. This was all part of God's plan, but, but you turned him over and had him crucified. But God then raised him from the dead. And now Peter's going to move on to talk about David because the promise was that, that this, the descendant of God or the descendant of David would become the Messiah. And so he says in verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This came from Psalm 16. Peter says, fellow Israelites, I may say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. For seeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses having been exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out that you may both see and hear. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, and this is from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. I mean, can you imagine how the people are feeling at this moment? I mean, they're all joined together. God's obviously doing something. The Spirit's been poured out, and, and the people are bewildered at what God is doing. And Peter just stood up and said, I can tell you what happened. It's your fault. 
You did this. God poured out his Holy Spirit and God then sent to us the Messiah. But you turned him over and, and you had him killed. But thank God he raised him from the dead. And now you need to know God has elevated him and made him both Lord and Messiah. Now the people are going, oh no. Now what do we do? And what have we done? How will God look at us now? This is horrible. What can we do? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with them many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What do we do? And Peter looks at him and goes, I tell you what you can do. You can repent. I mean, they're expecting to hear, There's nothing you can do. You had the Messiah killed. You're toast. But instead, he goes, I'll tell you what you do. You repent. And that word repent means to turn. It means to, to have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction, and, and to change toward God. And, and he says to them, repent so that your sins can be forgiven. In other words, that's the prerequisite that God has, God has offered to us grace and God has offered to us forgiveness. But there's something on our part. We have to accept it and receive it. Repent so that your sins can be forgiven. Repentance then is a little bit more than saying, oops. Sorry, it's deeper than that. It's a true, genuine change of heart and soul and life. And so then Peter goes on to say, so save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Except that's not really what he said. Now I'll confess to you, when I was growing up, I had to take English classes and, and, and I enjoyed you know, reading some of the things about it, but try, studying the grammar and the tenses of the verbs and all this stuff, that was not my favorite cup of tea. But, but you just need to know, that's not what this scripture actually says. You see, in the Greek, in the Greek language, word order doesn't mean anything. You know, in English it means a lot, but in, in the Greek, word order doesn't mean anything because what you do is you look at the noun. And the prefix and the suffix of the noun will tell you whether it's the subject or not of the sentence. And then you look at the verb and the prefix and the subject, you know, the, the suffix of the verb will tell you what tense the verb is. And, and you just need to know this verb in this sentence is a passive imperative verb. And that changes everything, doesn't it? I mean... Actually, when you think about it, it does, because the fact that it's a passive imperative verb means that it does not say save yourselves. What the scripture in the Greek actually says is let yourselves be saved. See the difference? It actually means let yourselves be saved. In other words, God is offering this to you, but there's a role on your part too, so let yourselves be saved. Let Experience this gift of God's grace. Turn Godward and let God save you. And what I love about this is sometimes we think that, that what we've done in our lives is so bad that there's no way that God could possibly forgive us. But Peter is now talking to the very people who just had the Son of God crucified and says to them, so let yourselves be saved by repenting so that you can be forgiven. And odds are none of you did quite that bad.
So no matter what we've done in our lives, God's grace is sufficient that, that God will let us be saved too by repenting and turning toward Him. Turning Godward. And so he goes on, verse 41, and says, So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And all came upon everyone because of the many wonders and signs that were being done by the apostles. And all who believed together had all things in common, and they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they spent much time together in the temple. And they broke bread together at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. So there's the response. I mean, Peter preached this amazing sermon. What do we need to do? Well, here's what you can do. Repent, turn toward God and, and, and allow yourself to be forgiven for your sins and and let God save you. Let yourselves be saved. Some 3,000 people heard the sermon. I mean, they, they just, I mean, we get a taste of that when we see a Billy Graham sermon and you see all. But this is Peter, 3,000, flooding for 3,000 people added to their number that day. The worship was vital. It was a powerful sermon. But you know the problem with the crusade or a sermon like this or, you know, that Peter just preached or even a sermon like the one I'm preaching is, is we can go, well, that was a good sermon. But then, then we go outside and, and then our, our phone buzzes and we start checking our emails and we look at our schedule and life happens and this happens and stress happens. And, and pretty soon that, that power and that presence of God begins to fade a little bit in our lives. How do we hold on to it? Well, catch what happened. After the 3,000 were saved, what did they do? They didn't just go home going, wow, I'm saved, I'm good to go, got eternal fire insurance. But, but rather, they devoted themselves. Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They committed. That word devoted means to commit. They made it a priority. They made their faith a priority. They made their relationship with God a priority. And I think the calling for us today is to ask the question, you know, is, is our faith in God really a priority today? Is our relationship with God really that important in our lives? Did you know, I, I, I share with you the, the latest Barna study shows that, that when you ask people who consider themselves to be active in worship, active people in the church, active in their faith, active in worship, what does that mean? It means they attend church 1.8 times per month. Less than twice, less than half of the worship services. I mean, our, our lives have changed because our priorities have changed. We are so busy. There's, there's so much distraction, so much chaos. And, and, and so no wonder we, we feel God sometimes fading from our presence. So what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To teaching. It's one of the reasons why our small groups, our classes, our Bible studies are, are so important because how do we know what it is we should believe? I mean, how do, we, how do we really know our faith? And how do we know when something is true to the faith? And you can go to a bookstore not too far from here and, and go to the religion section and go to the Christian section and I will just go ahead and tell you there's a lot of stuff on those shelves that is not good stuff. But how do you know? 
How do we know unless we study? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need mentors in our lives. We need people who can help teach us the scripture and teach us the faith. The word disciple means to be an apprentice. To be an apprentice of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be. Now, I, I will tell you, I used to be on the, the board of trustees up at Lake Norman Regional Medical Center. And so I was sitting around medical doctors all the time. And, and a lot of them are my friends. And we have doctors in the church right now. And, and I'll just tell you, because I know a neurosurgeon does not mean that I became one. Or the fact that, that, that I may have a good friend who's an orthopedist does not mean you want me replacing your knee. Because I know a guy. Or an infectious disease, doctor, or whatever it might be. We've got all those relationships that, that are there, but that, that does not mean, just because I know a doctor does not mean I became one. An apprentice is one who studies under one, who walks with one, who learns from one, who figures out what's going on, and, and after they've lived and lived and lived in that relationship, then they become we're called to be disciples, apprentices of Jesus Christ. And, and that means that we are constantly growing. One of my favorite professors that I had in seminary just retired from Emory University. And he was actually my advisor, Dr. Rex Matthews. And, and, and I was sharing with my wife. And I got the notice from Candler that he was retiring. And, and we had kept up some over the years through emails. And I saw him a few times when I would go to Emory for various things, sometimes in my role on the Board of Ordained Ministry. And and so I sent him an email. I said, congratulations on, on your retirement. Just wanted you to know. If you ever wondered, did, did your work make a difference? It made a difference in my life. You had such an impact. He did. He, was, he taught me so many things. One of the things, though, that he taught me that I'll never forget is, is when we first started in seminary. I mean, there I was, ready to get every tool that I needed to be an effective pastor. Now, they're they're going to give me everything I need. And then he looked at us and he said, you just need to know. In the next three years, we cannot teach you everything you need to know. What? You know how much I'm paying to come here? I mean, you better teach me everything. <laughs> he goes, over the next three years, there's just no way, no way we can do it. There's no way in the next three years that in three years alone, we can teach you every bit of theology that you need to know. There is no way that in the next three years we can teach you biblical studies on everything that you need to know. In the next three years, there is no way that we can teach you everything you need to know about preaching. In the next three years, there's no way we can teach you everything you need to know about teaching. In the next three years, there is no way we can teach you everything you need to know about pastoral care. In the next three years, there is no way we can teach you about everything you need to know about administration. There's just no way we can get all of that in in three years. And so he said... Our task is to teach you how to learn for the rest of your life at a master's degree level. That's our job. Our job is to teach you how to learn for the rest of your life at a master's degree level. I'll never forget that. Because as Christians, our job is to learn for the rest of our lives. It's not one of those deals where we go, I accepted Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I'm done. Not only that, I took disciple one 20 years ago. I'm done. But rather, no, we, we learn for the rest of our lives. We grow in our walk. We're in apprenticeship for the rest of our lives with Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Do you know just a... A few weeks ago, there was the National Spelling Bee. I don't know how many of you watched the whole thing. 
I didn't watch it either. I'll just go ahead and confess to you. But I did see the news and I saw how they won. Did you know what the last word was? Do you know the winning word? Do you know the winning word of the National Spelling Bee? Koinonia. Very good. The, the word that won the National Spelling Bee was koinonia, which is the Greek word right here for fellowship. Koinonia means Christian fellowship. It means a relationship. So they dedicated themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia. It it means a brotherhood, a sisterhood. It means a oneness. It means that that we become part of a family. Many of you know, my son is, our son is is getting out of the army. He's been in the army now for some time. And and, and this month he actually finishes up his his time in the military. He decided that he's going to do some other things with business and accounting and he's in two master's programs right now for that kind of stuff but it, it was interesting what you can learn from the military now right before he went to basic training a year or so before but he was he knew army's who i am and he's an army airborne infantry expert infantry badge i mean he's he just he was there but but about a year before that right before he went away we we went on vacation together as a family and he got sick and so here we are at Hilton Head, and he's sick. So Nancy and my daughter, they would, they would go to the beach and spend some time, and my son and I, we would go out there for just a few minutes, but then we would come back to the house, you know, to the, to the, the place where we were staying, and we watch movies. A lot of movies. All military movies. <laughs> we watched the entire the entire box set of Band of Brothers. Not just a couple of them, the whole thing. Beginning to end. Seen them all. Been there. We watched Saving Private Ryan, Behind Enemy Lines. I mean, it was just one after the other after the other. Because when we got home from vacation, I told my wife, I said, I'm exhausted. She said, we just got in for vacation. I said, I know, but I've been in combat for seven days. But there is something about that concept of band of brothers. Because it was interesting to watch how committed they are to each other. Once you become part of the group, you're part of the group. And I I remember when he was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan and, and we were getting ready as a family to take him to the airport, we had a biker gang show up at our house. I mean, all of a sudden, all these Harleys come thumping up the road, you know, and and they pull in our driveway. And we knew they were coming because Nancy knew one of the people and they had found out that way through through the insurance company. And and they found out he was deploying and several of them had been either veterans or they just really supported. So they wanted to come the day he was leaving. They brought him a plaque that that hangs in his room now. And and they just wanted to show you're you're one of us. There, There was a veteran from Vietnam. Pulled in our driveway. He wanted to be there the day that Andrew left. There was another veteran from Afghanistan that actually earned the Distinguished Service Cross that I had the privilege of being part of his ceremony, but he wanted to show up and be there when our son left to go serve his country and deploy. And what's amazing is, is even today we can be out somewhere and if, if somebody has on one of those hats that says, you know, that they're a veteran, they'll strike up a conversation and it's like they've known each other all their lives. It's absolutely amazing. There was a gentleman in our church, Mr. Varda. 
that had been in the military so distinguished in his, his ministry or his, his time of service. And, and, and he really wanted to get to meet my son, but his health wasn't good. And my son's schedule of, of when he might be home, you know, on a leave for a while. And we tried to work it out and work it out. And finally, one day, I'll never forget it. It was here in the sanctuary that my son was here and, and Mr. Varda came in and, and they made eye contact and, and, and they knew they'd been wanting to meet each other. They'd never met each other before, but they embraced. It was incredible. I mean, the embrace was unreal. Because even though one was World War II... And the other one was Afghanistan. There was a bond. And it was the most incredible thing that I've ever seen. They were a band of brothers. Well, that's what the word koinonia actually means, is that we, the church, we're called to be a band of brothers and sisters in Christ together. We're called to be a family, and, and they devoted themselves. They dedicated themselves. We're going to be in this thing together. And what's amazing to me is, is over the years, having, having, you know, watching my son in the military, seeing that sometimes when one of them goes through a hard time, it's amazing to watch the others drop whatever they're doing and go to be with that person. They drop everything to go, to go be with the other person. And, and so one time I remember asking him, I said, I didn't even think you guys were that close. He goes, we're not. But he's one of us. Wow. We're not. But he's still one of us. And that's all that it takes. And that's what we're called to be as the church. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also dedicated themselves to koinonia. And it doesn't simply mean, you know, we have some fellowship together. No, it means we're a band of brothers and sisters together. That there's a commitment here. That there's, there's a relationship here. We're not people that just sit in the sanctuary together. We're not people who just sit on the same pew periodically. But we're committed. And the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread is the sign of koinonia. Because in biblical times, if you ate with somebody, it meant that there was a relationship. If, if you ate with somebody, it meant that you were committed, that you were friends for life. I remember in seminary, my pastoral prefer pastoral care professor saying to us you know you're doing more effective ministry when you get invited to the kitchen table not the formal dining room but when you eat where you sit down where the family sits down when you eat where the family eats then you know that's a relationship wow it's one of the reasons when we built our house we decided we're not even going to do a, a formal dining room because if you're going to eat with us you got it might as well be one of us we're part of the family together. And they dedicated themselves to prayers. Conversation with God. It is really hard to be an apprentice if you never talk to the master. It is hard to be an apprentice without ever having conversation with a master. Well, as many of you know, my dad has had some amazing health issues and heart issues over the years. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school was when he had his first heart attack. He was only about 41, 42. Um, he, the heart attack, first one he had, killed about a third of his heart. So he, he just, he's just had all kinds of issues over the years. So, you know, whenever, uh, when I was in high school, he had like three heart attacks and then had open heart surgery about the time I got out. And, and as a matter of fact, I remember when I was in high school, if they would call my name on the intercom, Terry Moore, come to the office, I never thought I was in trouble. It was not one of those, what did I do? I fully expected when I would walk into the, you know, to the office of the high school that one of my family members was going to be there and tell me dad had another heart attack and he died. That's what I was expecting. Every time I heard my name, I was just expecting to get the news, your dad died. 
As a matter of fact, we, we did their 40th wedding anniversary celebration because we didn't think they would make it to 50. But then they made it to 50, we had to throw another one. And I asked them for a refund from the 40th because I didn't think that was fair. But now they've done over 60. I mean, it's just amazing that he's still alive today. But he's had, as you know, seven heart attacks, two open heart surgeries, a bypass, you know, from one leg to the other. Now he's dealing with lung cancer and, and he's going through treatments for that. And that's kind of challenging when you've got all the heart issues. So when we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, my dad actually had... A, a, a stroke, a minor stroke, and so we were only there two days when we packed up and came back so that we could, I could go spend a night with him at Baptist Hospital and we could take care of him uh, again there, and uh, he's doing fine now from that, and, and, and God is blessing, and he's getting stronger every day, but, but it was an amazing thing, but I'll never forget the story. He had a cardiologist by the name of Paul Kirkman. Paul was at Baptist Hospital in Winston, and and my dad just loved this guy because he, he, he believed that Paul had kept him alive all these years. And, and I call him Paul because we actually got close over the years. I mean, I've got his cell phone number, you know, in my phone right now. And I mean, you go through all that together, you kind of get close to your doctor. And we kind of got close. And he's just an amazing guy. But one day after my dad had had his third heart attack and open heart surgery, Dr. Kerbin walked into the room to see my dad. Dad was there for an appointment. And, and he goes, I just need to tell you something. And he goes, I quit. And dad said, what? And he goes, I'm done. I quit. Dr. Kerbin, I'm, I'm done. I quit. You need to find another doctor. And man, my dad panicked because, I mean, this is the guy who had helped save his life and keep him alive all this time. And he goes, I'm done. I, I, I just, I'm not going to be your doctor anymore. And dad says, tell me what's going on. Tell me why. Well, my dad grew up kind of rough. You know, he grew up in a very poor, I mean, he grew up in extreme poverty. His dad was an alcoholic. His dad, you know, didn't provide for his family. My dad had to start providing for his family because he was the oldest son. So all the others in my dad's family looked to him as, as the father figure and the caregiver. And, and so dad worked hard. And as a result of having a rough life, dad started smoking when he was only 13 years old. And so he hadn't quit yet either. He had had three heart attacks and open-heart surgery, and he hadn't quit at the time. And so the doctor looked at him and goes, I quit. I'm done. Why? Well, he goes, here's the way it is. He goes, I am doing everything I can do to save your life. I mean, I, I have worked with you. I have helped you. I've prescribed for you. I've done everything that I can do to help keep you alive. But if you're not going to do your part to help out on your side, then I'm done. I quit. Because if you don't care any more than that, I don't care any more than that. I quit. I'm done. And he walked out the door. And my dad was like, <sighs> and he never touched another cigarette. And that was over 30 some years ago. I mean, he was done right then. I mean, it was over because he, he knew I need this guy. I need this relationship. This relationship is vital to me. It's funny now because sometimes my dad will smell something and he'll go, I don't even like the smell of them anymore. And I said, Dad, we didn't either. When we were riding in the back seat, you only cracked the window that far. We didn't like it then. No. But Dr. Kirkman then continued to be his doctor for all these years until just last year. He just retired. And they still have this incredible close relationship. But I thought that was fair. You know, I, I can't do everything from my side. You've got to do something from yours. And I think that's what we need to hear sometimes as the church. Is, is God says to us, look, I, I've given you my son. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've committed my life to be with you. 
no matter what you do, where you are, I am always with you, even to the ends of the earth. But now some of this is on you. So let yourselves be saved. And they dedicated themselves then to their part, to the apostles' teaching, to koinonia, to breaking of bread and prayers. You know, I, I think sometimes in the church today, in our culture today, we're in a consumerist society that teaches, you know, we want to find a church where the preacher says what we want and, and does what we want and, you know, where we feel this and the music is this. And, but some of this is on us. I mean, you can blame me for some of it. I'll take some of it because I'm your pastor. I can take some of it. But you get some of it too. We all get some of it too. We've we got to do our part too. And so they dedicated themselves. They made their faith a priority. They committed to the apostles' teaching, to koinonia, to breaking of bread and prayers. And when they did, they experienced all. And constantly God added to their numbers. I wonder what would happen if we committed ourselves, made it a priority, letting God save us, and then committing ourselves the apostles' teaching, to koinonia, to breaking of bread and prayers. It'd be fun to see the all and to watch as God added numbers day by day. Will you pray with me? God, we just give you thanks for your love and your grace. And God, we just pray that, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit again. And God, we pray that you would help us to repent, that is, to turn to you. And that we would let ourselves be saved by the gift of your grace and your son, Jesus Christ. The power of your Holy Spirit. And so God, if there's one here this morning that, that has wondered if, if there's any chance for them, God, we pray that, that we would realize that if, if you're willing to forgive and save the very people who killed your son, Whatever we've done, wherever we've messed up, whatever's going on in our lives, you're willing to forgive us too by your grace. And so, God, we pray that, that we would just let you save us. And, God, we, we pray that then we would do our part in response and that, that we would commit our lives to you and that we would be committed to growing in our faith, to the apostles' teaching to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ, to learn for the rest of our lives and grow for the rest of our lives. And God, we pray that we be committed to koinonia. Help us to become brothers and sisters, a band of brothers and sisters in Christ. That thick or thin, no matter what, we're going to be there for each other. And even as a family, when we don't always get along and we don't always agree with each other, we're still together. We're still family. We're still brothers and sisters. Koinonia. And God, help us to live that out by breaking bread together and, and, and testifying in the way we live our lives with one another that, that we're bound to each other, friends for life. And God, conversation with you. Together we pray that, that you would help us to talk to you and listen to you. It's hard to be an apprentice when we don't listen to the master. So God, we just pray that you'd pour out your spirit. Offer your forgiveness and grace, we pray. And help us to receive it. And then to become the Christians you've called us to be individually and together. 
to be your church in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we sing our closing song, pass it on the altar, it's always open. Because sometimes we feel like where we are and what we've done is just too far away from God. But hear the good news. God loves you as much as anyone else in this world. And he gave his life for you. So come and let yourself be saved. And receive this gift of God's grace. And then we can come as well and recommit. I want to recommit. I want to dedicate. I want to be devoted. I want to make a priority my faith and my walk. With the apostles' teaching, koinonia, breaking of bread, and prayers. So let us stand and be the church that God has called us to be. Thank you.